You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Proven Principles for Good Health, Episode 5, with Diana Burnett. Greetings to our friends around the world, and welcome to Amazing Discovery Studios. Today we have another message on health that I pray will be very beneficial to you. All of us have concerns about health, especially as we age, and we all are looking for proven principles. So today we're going to again get into a subject that I think is pertinent to all of us, and I will bring out principles that we can find from the Word of God that I can guarantee you are proven. Before we begin, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, thank you for your great love towards us that you care about every aspect of our life, that you want us to be healthy, and that you have ways for us to find health. So we turn to you today, and I pray that your presence will be here with us all, in our audience, with me as I speak, and that you will give us a message that will bring us all closer to you in a healthier, happier life. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our topic today is going to be What's love got to do with it? Now, this was a popular song back in maybe the 60s or the 70s, but it's very pertinent for something that we love very much. It's about sugars, whether they're, they're good, bad, and hurtful. I want to turn our attentions to a Bible passage. In Psalms 19 and verse 10, we're we read these words that the psalmist David said, More to be desired are God's words than gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So we love sweet things, but the Bible, the Word of God, is to be even more treasured than anything of the sweetest things that we can find on this earth. That's what God wants us to have. He wants our life to be sweet. And so let's take a look, though, at some of the issues that we have with the sweeteners that we have here on this earth. I have this um, poster up here. It says, Welcome to Grandma, Grandma's, where memories are made and grandchildren are spoiled. I don't know about you, but when I think back on my early life as a child, going to Grandma's was a wonderful thing because Grandma always had goodies. I can still remember all her candies, her fudges and cookies and pies, and it just brings back warm memories. And I think many of us might have those same kind of feelings. Um, There's a reason that we have those warm feelings when we talk about sugar. The reason is, is that sugar has a direct message of joy from the tongue directly to our brain, our reward center. So as soon as the tongue experiences the taste of sugar, an incredible chemistry begins and messages blossom in our head. Let's look at the sweet taste journey. Anything that is a carbohydrate, so it could, um, it doesn't necessarily be, necessarily need to be a sugar, but some of our starches, 
like our breads, but when we think of um, carbs and we think of breads, there's also the sweeter things, like in fruits, in our cookies, in our pies. Those type of foods with carbohydrates, whether they're complex or simple carbohydrates, release serotonin throughout our body. Serotonin is a feel-good hormone. So that's one of the reasons that we have this warm, fuzzy feeling when we have sweet things. The other thing that happens, there's specialized taste buds on the cell, on, on the tongue. And as soon as they get, a, get that signal that something sweet is coming into the body, they send a message through the cranial nerve, and it travels in through different portions of the brain. We don't need to go into all the details. We want to just get to the end point, and that's in the limbic system. In the limbic system is our reward center, and it gives a release of dopamine. Now, dopamine is very similar in its effects to serotonin, but it gives you more of the sense of pleasure and satisfaction, and it also gives you a sense of desire. So it's what makes you feel warm and fuzzy along with the serotonin, and it's what makes you want more, and it's what links you to whatever situation you receive that sugar. So when you go to grandma's, grandma gave you that sugar, and you want to eat more. Do you know how big our sugar love has grown? Let's just take a look at it over the last, oh, two or three hundred years. They have measured that in the 1700s, the average adult consumed only four pounds of sugar a year. And then as we moved into the 1800s, it increased up to 18 pounds a year. And then as we go into the 1900s, look at that big jump. It goes all the way up to 90 pounds a year. And we could stop right there and say, wow, that's incredible. But by the time we reached this new century in the 2000s, the average person is consuming a half a pound of sugar a day. Now, there is 48 teaspoons, 48 teaspoons of sugar in one cup. There are 2.28 cups in one pound. So if a person is consuming an average of a half a pound a day, that's a little bit more than one full cup of sugar a day. That's quite a bit of sugar for anyone to consume, especially if it's a little person. So the smaller the body, these little children going around getting that much sugar, there's going to be an effect on them. But as I mentioned, this sugar, the reason we love it is because it produces this wonderful hormone, serotonin and dopamine. So I have a question. If we are consuming so much sugar in our world today, shouldn't we all be the most happy people in the world? We shouldn't have any sadness because sugar should just take away all our blues. But you know, there's a sad statistic. In America, in the United States, the statistic is that 32.4% of the population suffer from a mental disorder every year, whether it be depression, schizophrenia, some type of mental imbalance. That's a 
third of the population, or 75 million people. And most of those people are on medication for it. So let's look and see what is causing this problem. Take a look at this picture. Here we have two happy kids and a happy family. Their parents are in the back, and they're looking at each other with joy. But do you know what they're thinking? They just heard this statistic. About 50% of people will face a mental illness. That's according to the new DSM-4 manual that's coming out. And they say that sometime in a, someone's lifetime, the first onset of a mental illness will be in childhood or adolescence. So these two kids are looking at each other and say, well, is it going to be you or is it going to be me? You know, and you can turn around and mom and dad are looking at each other and say, well, it's not me, it must be you. And so it's kind of funny. As you look around, if 50% of people are going to suffer a mental illness, that means in a group of two people, it's either you or them. So it's not really a joking matter. Let's take a look at the increase on this graph. And I've overlaid the fat with the sugar increase in the last 100 years. So we're down here at the bottom. And what's important is not really the numbers. But from the 1900s, you see we're lower down on the graph. And with the last 100 years up into 2005, you can see that our calorie intake from sugar has dramatically increased. Now, some of our health issues, we can't all blame on sugar. And I don't want to put it all on sugar today. But it is a big culprit, so we need to talk about it. The World Health Organization, or WHO, along with the American Heart Association, has a recommended daily increase, uh, a daily intake of sugar. Both of these organizations say that our daily intake of sugar should be 25 grams. That's equivalent to six and a quarter teaspoons. That's the amount that is the healthiest and nothing more. Now that's their recommended dose, not more than six and a half teaspoons. But the average intake of sugar around the world is approximately 82 grams, which comes out to 19.5 teaspoons. But that's for people who are on, there's some on the lower end. That's the lower end of average. And some people aren't even taking in that much. So there are other people that are taking in up to 220 grams of sugar. That's up to 55 teaspoons of sugar a day. So we have a tremendous sugar problem in our worldwide. Now, we're, we all tend to like sugar. It's pleasant to the tongue, and we've explained why. Do you know that the Bible talks about sweet things? Let's look at a couple verses. Here's what the Bible says. Just a couple verses in Proverbs. It says, Hast thou found honey? Eat so much as sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. And then the other verse in Proverbs 25, 27 says, It is not good to eat too much honey. 
So what principles can we gain from these two Bible passages? Well, what I gain from reading it first is that we should only eat as much as is necessary for good health. And the second one is that if you eat too much, it's going to upset your digestion. And lastly, that too much of any sweet thing, whether it be honey or other sweeteners, is not good for your health. So these are some just basic, simple Bible principles. It doesn't tell us like the WHO and the American Heart Association, the American Diabetic Association tells us. But when these leading organizations that have studied and looked at the needs of every human being, you know, they, they establish a recommended daily allowance. And their recommendation is about six teaspoons. So you could do, um, honey's a little bit sweeter than sugar, but you could really do a straight shop, a swap over with honey and sugar, um, the, the white sugars or any of the other refined sugars that we have in our world. Let's just take a look at this map here. Here we have a global picture. Now, the darker colors, where you've got some darker purple, that's the highest amount of calories taken in from sugar. It's around 600 calories a day, which comes to about the 19 teaspoon level on average. And just at a glance, you can see that the United States is leading the way. They are the top in the world for consumption of sugar. But then you see the darker pink, and we have Canada and Central America and Southern America. It also has some pretty strong areas. And then across Russia. And then over in Australia, we have some pretty high consumption. Only those lighter areas that you see on the graph, the lighter greens and the olive-colored greens, those are very, very low levels. So really, the country that has the least amount of sugar intake is the Chinese people. And we've got the United States up on top. But I'm going to tell you, they don't take in the greatest amount of white sugar. This, um, this map right here is the um, intake of all kinds of sugar. If you took out fructose, the United States would be second in line. And the king for who takes in the most in the world is Brazil, down here in South America. So they are actually are the leading consumers of white sugar. Now something interesting is how this sugar intake is distributed. And we have found that the majority of white sugar comes in the form of beverages. So it's sweetened drinks. People don't like to drink just plain water. And once you get a little bit of sugar in your water, that's what they consume. So 43% of all of the sugars that we take in come from our beverages. They come from regular soft drinks. And then the other sources are some of our sweetened fruit juices. And not, what, not just the sweetened ones, but even natural juices like apple juice, grape juice. Those also have sugars that we can count in there. The reason that sugar um, adds up with the way it affects our body and gets in that concentrated form is because if you look at where white sugar comes from, it comes from the sugar cane. Of course, they also make it from sugar beets as well. But it takes three 
feet of sugar cane to make one teaspoon. You could not sit down in even a daytime and chew on three feet of sugar cane. Our body was never meant to consume that concentrated amount. But if you get it in the refined state, like we do in that what pretty white crystals, it's very easy to overconsume it. Now that's on white sugar. How about that delicious maple syrup? This is how concentrated maple syrup is. It, if we look here, it takes 86 gallons of maple syrup sap to make just one gallon of syrup. The sap has to be boiled down and boiled and boiled. It's boiled for hours. The boiling process alone, heating up that sugar, changes the composition that makes it harder on the body to handle. But it concentrates it down to a point that is like similar to eating white sugars. There are a few other minerals in maple syrup that you don't get in the pure white sugar crystals, but not that many. The biggest thing is that you're losing fiber and that makes that sugar rush into your body quickly. So let's look at some of the beverages that we take in. I'm going to give you uh, just a couple of examples of unhealthy sugar. Now we've talked about the 43% of our sugar coming from beverages. And the main part of those are from sodas. So if you have a normal serving of soda, 12 ounces, you are going to be getting anywhere from 32 to 44 grams of sugar and that comes down to 8 to 11 teaspoons of sugar in one soda drink. In 1955, the average intake of soda was 10 gallons per person a year. Now that's quite a bit, if you ask me. I've, I was raised in a family we rarely had soda, so 10 gallons would be pretty extreme. But do you know what it is today? In 2000, well, this was um, a few years back, but in the year 2000, the average intake of, a, of soda beverages was up to 54 gallons per person per year. Let's look at some of the other ways we consume our unhealthy sugars. So I, I don't think that I, we would have any argument if I asked you whether a candy bar was healthy or not healthy compared to an apple. If I held up a Snickers candy bar or I held up an apple and I said, okay class, this is Nutrition 101, you tell me what's healthy. I think everyone would agree that the apple is healthy and we know that these refined sugars and all the fats that are in them, they're not so healthy for us, but we override that because we like the taste so much. So let's look at a, a Snickers candy bar. This is a 1.9 gram size, and I just have to mention to you that the company that makes Snickers candy bar made a resolution that their candy bars would no longer go over 250 calories. So they used to have a two gram bar and they cut it back to 1.9 grams because that brings them right down below the 250 calories. 
because of our obesity problem. So they're trying to help us out. And they say, okay, we'll just shave one-tenth of a gram off, and we'll give you a little bit less, and you won't even notice it, but that'll take a lot of calories out. But this 1.9 gram contains 27 grams of sugar. Well, I didn't tell you, but there are four grams of sugar per teaspoon. So if you want to know how many teaspoons that is, you take the 27 grams and you divide it by four, and you come up with 6.75 um, teaspoons. That's equivalent to 104 calories. So out of the 250 um, calories total in this candy bar, almost half, a little bit less than half of them, are coming from sugar. Just a little um, trivia on the side, if you want to know where the rest of the calories come from, most of them come from the 12 grams of fat that are in this candy bar. And there's 5 grams of fat per teaspoon, and that brings it up to 108 um, grams of fat, or 108 calories, excuse me, that you are getting in this candy bar from fat. So between the fat and the sugar, you are getting a whopping 200 and, what would that be, 14 um, calories just in this one little candy bar. So if you ate this whole candy bar and you consumed 250 calories, do you know how much exercise it would take to burn off those calories? Probably more than most people do today. But here's a way that you could get rid of 250 calories. You would have to do two of these exercises in a day. You would have to walk for 65 minutes, or you would have to jog for 29 minutes. You could swim for 21 minutes, or you could cycle, whether it's out on a bicycle or a stationary cycle, for 34 minutes. So it's going to take you roughly an hour and a half to two hours to burn off those 250 calories. So I'm not saying that just exercising is good to get rid of the problems with the sugar, but it will help keep your weight down as you burn off those calories. Well, we've been talking about some unhealthy things, like your candy bars and your sodas, but is that the only place that we get our high source of sugars? Let's look at some healthy sugars that we consume. How about our Jamba Juice? Do you like your Jamba Juice? It sounds like something really healthy. You can go down and it's blended fruit, it's icy, it's delicious, it's better than ice cream, healthier than ice cream. Well, their Jamba Juice Banana Berry Smoothie, the small size, it has 60 grams of sugar in that small drink. That's 15 teaspoons of sugar. Now, let me remind you, the WHO Association says that we should not take in more than 25 grams or 6.25 teaspoons. So right here, you have more than double the recommended amount of sugar. Now, this might surprise you. This is really healthy stuff. This has no added sugar, and it comes right from nature. So let's look at apple versus apple juice. And this is unsweetened, not sweetened apple juice. This is unsweetened apple juice. In a 8-ounce drink of apple juice, you have 24 grams of sugar. And if you eat the apple, a medium-sized apple, you're going to get 19 grams of sugar. Well, that might sound almost 
um, enough to take you back. It's like, well, maybe I shouldn't eat an apple because if we're only to get 25 grams of sugar a day, let's see, 25 grams and you've got 19 just in a medium-sized apple, that only leaves you 6 grams left for the day. And you should only eat, if you ate two apples, you're going to exceed the amount. Well, there's a little bit difference, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later in our presentation of why the sugars that are in fruit do not affect you quite the same as when they're in the refined um, situation. But let's just look at a graph of an experiment that was done. There was research done, and they took their subjects and they fed them an apple, and they then took that apple that was made into applesauce. And then they took apples and made them into apple juice. And they looked at the blood sugar levels from um, each of three of these different types of consuming apples. And what you see on the graph here, the baseline of a healthy blood sugar is around 70. It's, you know, it can be between 70 and 90, but we like it around 70. So these subjects, um, their baseline blood sugar level was right there about 70. So when they consumed an apple, applesauce or apple juice, you will notice that all three of them peaked an hour later just about the same. They all came up about the same. There wasn't a different difference. But what was significant was in the drop in blood sugar. So if you look the red line, which is consuming apple juice, it dips the farthest down, and that is even going below 55. So when you go below 60, that is hypoglycemia, and you can start getting shaky, you start feeling your body's like getting a message, I'm out of sugar, because your brain needs the most amount of sugar than any part of your body. And so it gets a little bit worried, and you start shaking, and it start doing things to pull your blood sugar back up. And then what you see with the applesauce, it didn't dip quite as much, but it still dipped down below 65, a little bit above 60. And then your apple, you'll notice that it dipped very, very little. It's above 65, and it came back up to the normal baseline in a, night, in a more timely way. So what made the difference? Let me explain to you what happens. In the apple juice, what they have done is totally remove all the fiber from the apple. And so what happens, that sugar gets into the bloodstream very quickly and sends a message to the pancreas to put out the insulin to handle it. Well, it's such a strong message because it gets in there so rapidly that the pancreas overdumps insulin. And insulin will connect to the, the sugars and pull it into blood cells, or I mean, excuse me, even to, um, into all of our cells because we all all the cells need the sugar. And so, with that rapid um, decrease in the blood level of sugar, you have a drop. Even though it's gone into the cells, the blood level drops, and this is what we're seeing on the graph. Now, with the applesauce, you haven't removed the fiber. All you do to make applesauce is you cook the apple and then you blend it. But it's the blending, the mashing of the whole apple that changes the fiber. So it's released again quicker into the bloodstream 
releasing more insulin and causing a drop. It's only when you consume the whole apple that your body does not get as severe of a drop and you feel more calm about it. So this is a very significant reason that it's always best to eat food as close as you can from nature. Let's look at one more drink because I found this one fascinating. Apple juice I thought was um, pretty high, but if you look at eight ounces of grape juice, unsweetened grape juice, what we find in, an, in one glass, we see that there are 36 grams of sugar or nine teaspoons. Again, it's better to get your grape juice just from chewing the grapes. It takes a lot of grapes to make that eight ounces of grape juice more than you would want to eat if you sat down and had just a plate of grapes. So this is ways that we have to be aware that we're getting way more sugar into our body than is recommended for good health. One more example. How about these things, craisins? You know, they sound pretty good, cran apples combined with raisins, and those are both really good things. Now, raisins in themselves are very concentrated sugar. Anytime you dehydrate a, a food, you're going to concentrate the sugar because you're dehydrating out the water. Well, in craisins, in one-third of a cup, you have 33 grams of sugar, which comes to 7 grams of natural sugar are 7.25 teaspoons. All right, I don't know, some of you might be squirming out there because you're realizing that you're, you're eating some of these things that you thought were really healthy, but they're really giving you too much sugar. The problems with sugar have drawn so much attention that there are movements that are even pushing, lobbying, to regulate sugar. In the magazine Nature in 2012, they ran an article and they called sugar a toxic substance that should be regulated along with tobacco and alcohol. Now, when I've been studying sugar quite a bit and I know a lot about its health problems. There's a, it causes mood disorders, behavior disorders, as well as health issues, and we'll talk about those. I'm not necessarily for regulating them, though. But I think it would be a good idea if we were more careful and took them out of our school systems and not made them so available to people. But to really pass laws on them? Uh, I don't know. I kind of question that. But the point that I brought out here is that it is so significant that there are people linking it, paralleling it, with alcohol, tobacco, and even cocaine and saying that we need to do something so that we're not consuming so much sugar. So there was studies that were done on eating too much sugar, and that included natural sugar as well as high fructose corn, corn sugar. And what they found is that these substances, one, they make us fat. Second thing is they damage our liver. The next thing is they found in these studies that too much sugar impairs our general metabolism. The things that break down food and, and make the building blocks of our body, our hair, our skin, all of the digestive juices, the things that make your heart go, every part of your body has to do with how you metabolize. 
and too much sugar, which is above the WHO recommendation, is causing these kind of problems. But that's not all. There's, I'm not done with my list. It impairs brain function. And that's one of my greatest concerns. I don't like to, diseases of the body, but the greatest concern for me is when it impairs the brain. We'll talk about um, some of our top causes of death, mortality in the world at another um, series, in another lecture. But I just want to mention that in the last, oh, 10 years, maybe a little bit less, Alzheimer's disease has come up to number six on the top 10 causes of mortality. And so anything that's going to impair our brain function, I want to pay attention to it. Okay, let's move on. It also increases the risk of heart disease, diabetes, and even cancer. These are the top killers. And so they have linked the intake of too much sugar to these top diseases. And this was by a study done at the um, University of California at San Francisco. Well, let's go on and look at some of the complications caused by sugar. And I want to ask you, does that sweet, sweet stuff that we love so much really bring us a bitter har um, harvest? In an article on, in the National Geographic, a doctor was interviewed his name was Richard Johnson. He's a nephrologist, a kidney doctor at the University of Colorado. And he made this statement to the man who was writing the article. He said, in quotes, it seems like every time I study an illness and trace a path to its cause, I find my way back to sugar. That's pretty significant. He's saying that every disease I look at, one of the risk factors, one of the causes is sugar. He said, why is it that one-third of adults now have hypertension? Why is it that in the 1900s, there was only 5% of people that high, had high blood pressure? Why is it that 153 million people have diabetes? in 1980, and today it's over 340 million that have diabetes. And they're projecting that if the current rate stays where it's at, that by 2025, that one in three people will be diagnosed with diabetes. More and more people, he said, are becoming obese. You know, I, I know that people might not understand it, but wherever you go and you look around, particularly in the country I come from, the United States, more and more people are overweight. He says that sugar is one of the big culprits. It's not the only one, but it is the biggest. All right, well, let's look at some of these problems that they're finding with sugar. One study done by Dr. Westness found, well, what he was looking at, let me tell you this first. You know, a lot of people say, well, sugar causes hyperactivity. 
And so he did a study. He wanted to see if that was really true because like everything, there's always two sides of the research. There's research that'll say, oh, sugar causes hyperactivity, and there's going to be other sides that say, absolutely not. It has nothing to do with hyperactivity. So as he was looking at it, what he found was really that sugar was linked more to attention. It caused attention deficit. And so whether we can put our um, vote on one side or the other, whether it causes hyperactivity, we do know from this study that was reported in the, um, let's see, it was in the Yale Scientific, that's where it was, the Yale Scientific Report. So he had four groups of, of subjects, and one group, as you look at the slide here, one group was given no breakfast. That's the blue bar. The other group, the second group, was given a glucose drink, and that you'll see in red. Another group was given Cheerios, that's in yellow. And another group was given a breakfast cereals called Shreddies, that's the brown bar. So I hope you can see this rather clear. And so at a half an hour after eating the, the foods, here is what it looks like on the graph. So at the zero level, you see that those who had no breakfast had the greatest attention. That's, that's what he's measuring. He's looking at attention span. So that was the king. 30 minutes after no breakfast, they had the best attention. The one in the red bar is the greatest lack of, um, of attention. The yellow bar is a little bit less, and then those that had shreddy was just a little bit above those that had no breakfast at all. But let's look what happened, and I don't think we need to go through all of them in detail, but you'll see as we go through an hour and a half, two and a half hours, and then the last group of bars, the three and a half hour point. Let's look at the results of that. So we see that those who had no breakfast compared to those who had the glucose drink are about neck and neck. So the blue and the red bar are way down in the deficient um, attention span. And then those that had breakfast, Cheerios was the best, and those that had Shreddies was right after that. It still dips down a little bit, but nothing like if they had the sugar drink. So what this, the conclusion that came from this study was that a sugar-laden breakfast causes attention deficit. And whether that carries over to some hyperactivity, what we would think is a misbehaving, really stems from attention. The bottom line of the story is, my friends, you need to eat a good breakfast and stay away from the sugary-laden things that will cause your attention to be diminished. Okay, let's look at our teeth. We love to lay our mouth around some of these nice sugary things, but they have found that sugar is associated with dental caries. And there's so many studies out there, but the main message that I want to give you is that the main thing with sugar is that when you consume high sugar amounts, that it affects the integrity of the gums, it affects the integrity of the teeth, the nerves, everything associated with our mouth. Even the saliva pH is affected. 
So what our recommendations from this research that came out is that those countries that really already have a low intake of sugar, they don't have dental caries, and so they're giving the message to that country, stay the same way. Don't adopt the rest of the ways of the world where we're having sugar problems. I, I didn't take time to do this, but I've seen pictures of third world countries maybe like 50 years ago, 75, 80 years ago, and all of the inhabitants in this little rural outpost community, none of the people had dental caries. And then when Western civilization comes in and our sugar and our fast foods come in, now you see pictures today of our, those sweet smiling faces and their teeth are all rotted away because sugar has caused the cavities to come in. Well, we're just going to basic, briefly mention diabetes and sugar. This is one statistic. Sugary drinks do come with a risk. So that 43% of sugar that we're consuming in the form of sweet beverages, here's the, the risk factor for diabetes. They have found that there's a 26% increased risk of type 2 diabetes. That's only with one to two sugary drinks a day, whether it's in fruit juice or soda. So that's compared, they were looking at people that drank only one soda or one sweetened drink per month. So that's quite a bit. You um, have a quartered, you've quartered the amount of risk that you have for developing diabetes. Now, as we move on, this is associated with diabetes, but it has a broader category. I don't know if any of you have heard of metabolic syndrome. So if we look at our chart here, here's a man, and he's obviously overweight. But not all people with metabolic syndrome are overweight. But there's a category of diseases that are associated with the symptoms of metabolic syndrome. So let me just tell you what these are. We have heart disease. We have lipid problems, such as high cholesterol, high triglycerides. We have hypertension, type 2 diabetes, dementia, and even cancer is on the list. And then we have polycystic ovary syndrome. And something that is on the rise is non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome. Well, the American Heart Association has given us some dire um, statistics on this. They say that 56 million Americans have metabolic syndrome. They also say that about one out of five Americans over the age of 20 have metabolic syndrome. And this is associated with higher risk for any of the chronic diseases, such as the ones that I have mentioned. Well, let's look at how sugar and fructose interact with this metabolic syndrome. High sugar intake is going to increase the stress and the damage of critical organs, particularly the pancreas and the liver. It overworks our pancreas, and when the pancreas fails to regulate the blood sugar properly, it's going to wear out and the complications of improper blood sugar balance is going to be seen throughout the body. Now, fructose overwhelms the liver in a different way than sugar does. 
because unlike any of the other types of sugar, fructose, which is the type of sugar that you find in fruit, but the type that I'm talking about is fructose that has been manipulated. That means taken out of its package of nature and refined, and that's what's being put into our foods, our drinks, particularly high fructose corn syrup. So because it's metabolized only in the liver, it will overwhelm the liver and convert the excess um, sugars to fats and then send them into the bloodstream and deposit fats elsewhere. This process, with too much sugar in the bloodstream, turning into too much fat in the liver and other places in the body, is what leads to metabolic, the metabolic syndrome. It causes high triglycerides, it causes higher cholesterol and blood pressure and abdominal fat problems. That's from a study that's been compiled from the Sugar Science, the University of California, San Francisco. You can find the site on the internet and I highly recommend it. They're just loaded with all kinds of facts about sugar that will really benefit each one of us. Now, scientists have really been looking at um, why when you have abdominal fat, when it deposits here around our middle, they've seen that it causes chemical imbalances in other place in the body. So they're actively looking why these hormone imbalances are happen happening, particularly due to the overabundance of fructose that's connected with these chronic diseases such as um, the high blood pressure, diabetes, cancer, and even Alzheimer's. Well, let's look at the issue with fructose and high blood pressure. I think high blood pressure is one of the most common heart diseases that we see in the world today. Well, high fr um, fructose metabolism, in general, the way it's broken down, produces a byproduct called uric acid. Now, most of us might associate uric acid with gout, arthritic gout problems, you know, where your big toe, it's, that's one of the main symptoms. You get a swelling in these crystals that form in your toe, extremely painful. But it causes other problems. This high uric acid will drop the level of nitric oxide in our body. Nitric oxide is very important for our muscle integrity. It's what makes it relaxed and smooth. And all of your blood vessels are lined with these smooth muscles. And so when the nitric oxide level goes down, what happens is the blood vessels get stiff and they constrict. When that happens, your blood pressure goes up. So one of the top causes of high blood pressure is from consumption of fructose. We mentioned non-fatty, non-alcoholic, it's NAFLD, and something that it will progress to if the individual continues to consume too much fructose and too much sugars in general. It will go on to produce non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH is what we call it. This is all caused from a high consumption of manipulated fructose. That means fructose that's been taken out of its natural source. 
there's no fiber, there's no nutrients, and it's digested in the liver where this excess sugar is turned into fat. And it has an alcoholic-like damage to the liver. When you get too much fat buildup, you get what's called fatty liver, but it's not from alcohol. That's mostly what it has been from. But there's another problem if that continues to progress, and then you actually get scarring and inflammation. If it progresses even farther, it's going to go into cirrhosis. So the scientists looking at this, they have projected that about 25% of individuals who get NASH will progress on to liver cirrhosis, leading up to the need of a liver, trans uh, a liver transplant, or else they will die. NASH is also one of the third leading reasons that people need to have a liver transplant. But let's look at the non-alcoholic um, fatty liver disease. 31% of American adults are diagnosed with this condition. And they say that 13% of American children have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The causes, again, are too much, high, the, too much fructose. Particularly what we're getting is this high fructose corn syrup. It also is from trans fats, it's from being overweight, and it's from not exercising. It seems that the more pounds that we're putting on, the less movement we have. And so these things are just cycling us into this liver failure. Well, you might be asking a question as I'm talking about fructose and the damage that it does on the body, and you might be a little bit scared and say, well, what about fructose and fruit? Is there a problem? Well, there's two different sides of that research as well. There are some researchers that say that you shouldn't even consume too much fruit. But the main problem I think that we could all agree with is that it comes from the refining of fructose out of the natural fruit because it, it, the body handles it different. When it's in the whole form, you've got the fiber, you've got other nutrients, and those other phytonutrients along with the fiber helps the way the body metabolizes it and handles it. One of the things it does is make the metabolism slower so it's, the body's not overwhelmed with it all at once. So we would say that it's really the industrial or manipulated type of fructose that causes the problem. What they find with the manipulated fructose is that your blood sugar will spike much higher than normal within the first hour. But in the second hour, you get that extreme dip that, like I showed you on the graph for the apple versus the apple juice. So you're getting even a more exaggerated spike and a more exaggerated dip. The other thing is with this, with added fruit to a, a fructose drink. So let's say that we had a cup of water. This is a study that um, researchers have done. They've had just a glass of sugar water with fructose um, sugar in it. And they added raspberries to it. So they blended it up, and then they looked at the blood sugar at one hour and again at two hours. And what they found is that adding that whole fruit to that sweetened drink 
actually lowered the spike and raised the dip. So it blunted the effect of that sugar. Now as they looked into it, they thought, well, maybe it's just from the fiber that slowed that down and made the difference. So they did a couple experiments more, and they took and added raspberry juice. They juiced um, the raspberries, and they added that to the fructose drink. Well, there was no change. There was no dampening of that effect. So it's like, well, it, the fiber did have a big part. Well, excuse me, let me tell you, there was a little bit of effect, not as much as with the whole. So they said, okay, most of the effect was from adding the whole fruit with the fiber. But what would happen if we just looked at the phytonutrients? So they um, started adding the phytonutrients to it, and they found that that had a role along with the fiber. So... As I've said, we summarized that, that the dampening of the spike was due to both the fiber and the phytonutrients in it. Well, there's another very important aspect to what sugar does to our body, and that's with our immune system. I think you might realize that our immune system is really our defense system. It's what keeps you from dying if you catch a common cold. If your immune system wasn't working and you caught just the common cold, you would not survive. So your immune system is the white blood cells and all of the whole body tissue that works to keep away germs and to keep you from succumbing to a fatal illness. Scientists have looked at what happens when you feed um, sugar to the white blood cells. And if you look at this graph, over in the left-hand side, the um, yellow bars are the amount of bacteria that the white blood cells could consume. So the first bar, the person has eaten no sugar, and a white blood cell with no sugar in the body, um, like no added refined sugars, and not too much even of fruit sugar. So this was just at a, a good fasting um, blood sugar level. So a healthy white blood cell can consume 14 white blood cells. Then what they did is they fed them, the second bars there, they fed them six teaspoons of sugar. Now you might ask how they did that. What it was was in a solution and they put it in the um, bath and they're watching them under the microscope. The white blood cells with six teaspoons could only consume 10 white blood cells. And then as we go down the line with 12 teaspoons, so we double the, the amount of sugar, it dropped to six white blood cells consumed. And as it rose to 18, only two white blood cells were consumed. And when you got up to the amount of 24 teaspoons, which is right about the average intake around the world of sugar, they found that the white blood cells could barely function. It was zero to one. Actually, they acted just the same way as an uncontrolled diabetic responds to a bacterial or viral infection. So sugar greatly dampens our ability to fight the diseases. Now, this isn't just infectious diseases. It also impacts cancer. 
scientists have found that sugar is related to cancer. And this is part of the reason is because what it does to the blood, to the immune system. So I've circled here the 16, the, excuse me, the six teaspoons of sugar that it can only fight, uh, consume 10 white blood cells. That's at the recommended level of who. So you can see that even at the recommended level that our immune system is dampened. Well, there's so much emerging out there. New fields are opening up everywhere because the world is seeing that we have a problem. We have a major sugar problem. And they're starting to study more into the relationship of sugar with cancer. They see that the more intake of sugar and refined carbohydrates, that there's an increased risk for some cancers, as well as for higher rates of recurrence and lower rates of survival after cancer therapy. That's very significant. You know, I, I really want to get this word out because I think maybe most of you know the statistics. Cancer has now become the top to maybe the number two cause of mortality in our world. They're saying that one out of two people will come down with cancer. So this is significant. And I know from going through this cancer regimen with my daughter that the food that is fed to patients in the hospital that are going through treatment with cancer is not careful with the intake of sugar. So maybe if this gets out more and it gets bigger, that even in our hospitals when they're treating cancer patients, that this will have an impact and they'll be more careful. Alzheimer's disease and memory is very significant, and they've been seeing that excess sugar con uh, consumption has much to do with these losses in memory and overall cognition levels in general. We mentioned the attention deficit. In fact, what scientists are saying is that dementia, Alzheimer's, is actually diabetes of the brain. They've even been looking at aging. They have found that sugar tends to age our cells more, as well as wrinkling the skin. So it has something to do with the aging process, making us older than we really are. Some of the other areas of concern are allergies, arthritis, behavior problems. We mentioned a little bit of that previously. Any of our degenerative diseases, Depression is right up there. In fact, one of the books I first read when I started studying nutrition was a book called Sugar Blues. That title right there tells you that it has to do with sugar's link to depression. It's a book by William Duffy, and I highly recommend that you read it. It's an incredible book on the history of sugar and how our disease process has changed, particularly our mental illnesses. So I've mentioned migraines, but I, this is something um, that you don't hear much about. Did you know that even sugar, particularly high intake of sugar, more than the recommended amount, is associated with heart arrhythmias? Have you ever felt that palpation uh, where you feel like you know your heart's kind of pounding, you get a little bit skipped beats? Sugar can be um, linked to irregularity in the rhythm of the heart. Well, this, 
this slide right here, if you want to take a look at it, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. But what this is showing us is the artificial sweeteners that have come into our world since 1960. At the very beginning of the graph is 1960, and it goes up to 2010. The orange color is the percent of population consuming artificial beverages. The middle line, the red line, it gives us the percent of the population with the BMI, uh, body mass index, of greater than 30%. So that's looking at obese people. And you can see from 1960, we had 14.3% of the population were um, considered obese. And then when you look at 2010, it has climbed up to 41.3%. Now, if you look at the top, it is a, the purple line. What that is showing us from the year 2000 up to 2010, that is a graph of the new products brought into the market that contain artificial sweeteners. I just wanted to bring that in, not to go into detail, because it's a very important topic, and actually it's a full presentation on its own what these artificial sweeteners are doing. Um, I want to invite you to go through the Amazing Discovery Library. I know they have information on some of these sugars. But it's just interesting to see how it has skyrocketed in the last few years. So we're not going to go into that much, but I just want to let you know those are red flag warnings, and I, I would like you to study into it more. So we're going to go now into a little bit of the addictive qualities of sugar. We're only going to look at one study here that tells us overall what is happening. There's many studies now that are looking at this, but the United States National Institute on Drug Abuse has done a study. And as they looked at the MRIs or PET scans of people who are addicted to cocaine, what they did then is take individuals and they put them on a sugar diet. And over a period of time, a six-month period, they looked at what happened to that person's brain. And they found that the brain patterns of a person on consuming a higher-than-recommended amount of sugar, that their brain operates the same as a cocaine addict. The reason for that is that, as I mentioned at the beginning of our series, or of our talks here, talk here today, that sugar stimulates the reward center, and it creates this desire for more sugar, and so you get into this addictive cycle, needing more and, not, and having a blunted effect, so you need to take in more and more and more sugar, getting, trying to get that dopamine high that sugar causes. They say that one serving of sugar can lead to a craving for more. I was in an audience one time. I was on a panel discussion, and we had it open to question and answers. And a young woman in the audience raised her hand, and she said, well, what if I eat healthy all week? I eat my kale salad, and I have my fruits and my vegetables, and I am really, really good. Can't I just have one treat a week? 
Would that be bad? Well, the other um, physician that was on the panel um, with us, his response was perfect. He said, no, overall, that one dessert that you have in a period of a week is not really going to make or break your health, but there's a major problem with it. That one dose of sweetness is going to trigger the addictive cycle. And it's not that you're just going to say, I'm just going to stick to one a week. What it does is tend to make you want more and more. And, of course, everybody's a little bit different. But the way that we look at the general population in the world today, people are becoming more and more addictive. That's their, the tendency is more of their addictive nature is in process. So we're at risk. Now, does that mean that you shouldn't ever have something sweet? Well, let's look at what we can do. I don't know if any of you are a sugar addict. I would venture to say there's a majority of people in the world, and I'm thinking that maybe there's some of um, our viewers today that are struggling with sugar. But you can break the habit. And I'm going to give you a few ideas in closing here that you can overcome the habit. Let's look at some steps to eliminate cravings. The first thing that I recommend that you do is to get informed. Because if you get informed, what you need is to become convicted. You know the story of Daniel in the Bible and in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel? If you read that story, Daniel and three of his Hebrew friends were captive into the Babylonian kingdom. And they were chosen to be educated to be in the king's court. Well, there was a problem for these four young men because the food that was offered to them was the best of the kingdom. But they knew it wasn't the best for their body. They were offered all the riches, all the dainties from the king. It was a high fat, high meat, high sugar, alcoholic um, type of diet. And these boys knew they were in trouble. So Daniel and his friends, after a period of prayer, they went to the, the man who was the master of the group that he was in, and they said, you know, would you ask the king if we could have a 10-day trial of just eating a plant-based food? Well, that scared the, the master of the, the men because he thought, oh, if they try to change, they could get their head chopped off or I could get my head chopped off. But he brought their request, and the king said, okay. And it makes the statement in Daniel that Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile his body with the king's meat. And that's what you have to do for anything that you take over. You have to purpose that that is what you're going to do. And in order to do that, to be determined that that's what you're going to do, you have to believe that that's what you have to do, that you need to do it. And so as you study about it, you will be more convicted and say, this is what I'm going to do. So I have a couple of um, recommendations. There's Sugar Science. I've mentioned it in the program. And there's Institute for Responsible Nutrition. Both of those are from the University of California at San Francisco. 
Another wonderful site that I get a, incredible information from is nutritionfacts.org. Dr. Michael Greger has three to five minute videos on all kinds of topics of health. And you can get on his daily newsletter and you can read about all these topics, but you can focus on sugar for what we're looking at today. Another site that you want to have at hand is nutritiondata.self.com. This is an incredible site, and it's not necessarily information in general about sugar or about fats or things, but what it gives you is the nutritional value in any, there's, well, there's about a thousand different foods in there. So what I did, like when I wanted to find out about the apple juice or the grape juice, I went to Nutrition Data, and I typed in apple juice. And they will give you a full readout, how many vitamins, how many minerals, how much fat, how much sugar. And they give you two other key information. And that is they will tell you the glycemic index, if it spikes your blood sugar high. And they also tell you the inflammatory value. So that's very important. So you can look and say, okay, well, I'm eating this for breakfast. You can look on there and see how much sugar you would be getting. The next thing that I want you to do is to know your health status. Now, everybody's different. Some people have a more sensitive system, and they cannot handle as much sugar as someone else. Men, in general, tend to be able to burn off sugar better than women. But what you can do as an individual is know what your fasting blood sugar is. You can ask your doctor to do this for you. Or if you're diabetic, you know how to do it. And then the other thing that is very important is your hemoglobin A1C. This level measures the amount of sugar on a red blood cell. And so what it does is give us the value of your average blood sugar over a period of three months. So instead of having a one point in you know a, a period of time, it could be higher one day, lower another day. But when you look at the overall three months, what that tells me is whether your sugars have been too high or whether they're just right. I've, I, it's rare to find someone that has a too low of a blood sugar, unless they're on insulin or something like that and it artificially drops their blood sugar. But the value that we want to see is anything less than five. Now that's in the units that we have in the United States and some of the other countries. You'll need to convert that. When you get up to six, your risk for diabetes and other um, of these diseases that we talked about today, it's going to be greatly um, impacted. But if you're below five, that's telling me that your body is handling the amount of sugar and the type of sugar that you're taking in. If it's anywhere above that, you're going to have to be more careful. The next thing that I think would be significant is to make yourself accountable. Tell somebody what you're doing so that they can check on you. If you know someone's going to say, oh, did, how'd you do with eating that candy bar today? And you know you have to report. It's going to help you make that decision to stay away from it. And along with that, the person that you make yourself accountable for, make them a partner because I'm sure that the health value of lowering the sugar intake for another person would be great too. The good news is that the damage that has been done in your body 
can be changed, and particularly in your brain. Now, some people, you might think, well, I just can't get away from sugar. I can't change. But a research was done by the USDA that actually took a group of people that had been used to eating a lot of junk food, a lot of sugar, and they enrolled them in the study for six months, and they gave them healthy food. And the majority of them stuck to the program. And what they found by taking a brain scan at the very beginning, and then they took a brain scan at the end, and they would look at their brain responses when they showed them pictures of different food. And they found at the end of six months of consuming healthy food like kale salads and um, whole grains and all these other good fruits and vegetables, when they would see those pictures, their brains would highlight at the end of the six months when they saw those good foods, just like they lit up in excitement when they saw the unhealthy food. And there was a diminished response in their brain activity to the junk food. Their brain had been so trained that they no longer wanted the sugary foods and the junk foods that were causing them the problems. We're getting close to closing, but you know what? This is an incredible thing. Do you know that if you can train a dog to get off of sugary things or unhealthy food and eat vegetables, that I know you can do it too. And I, I've had a number of dogs, and my dogs are total vegetarians. And how I did it? Well, let me tell you. I heard a speaker one time, and he was into all fresh, raw food. He wouldn't eat anything left over. And so if they had a salad for dinner and it wasn't all eaten up, the dogs were who got the scraps. And so someone asked, where'd you get vegetarian dogs? And he said, well, I went down to the Humane Society and I picked out two dogs. And I just started feeding them these raw vegetable salads and even my fruits. And it's like, and he ate them? Your dogs ate them? And he said, well, let me tell you. For the first few days, they wouldn't touch the food. The second day, they wouldn't touch the food. On the third day, they wouldn't touch the food. But something changed on the fourth day. After four days of only having fruits and vegetables and um, some other um, of the vegetarian menu, he said they were so hungry, they scarfed their whole bowl, and for as long as we have them, they eat just what we eat. Now, I want to tell you, the same thing that happened to those dogs will happen to you because it takes three days to change the body chemical. So when sugar tastes good to you today, if you go four days without it, in fact, if you went four days on a very simplified diet, I don't want to say water fast because I don't want... If you ever do a water fast, I want you to have medical supervision. You might have health conditions that it's not good. But you will change your body chemistry, and on the fourth day, the things that you didn't like at the beginning, you will love. I can testify to it. I used to hate broccoli. Oh, I used to hate kale. And I don't know if any of you have ever eaten arugula. It is very strong. I hated it, but I doused it with lemon, and I did other things, and I learned to like it. Now, today, I will tell you, I can eat arugula, and it tastes like the best thing there is on earth. So, if you have a veggie dog that can do it, I want to tell you, you can do it. 
Well, let's finish up with a few more important tips on how to eliminate your sugar cravings. One of the top things that I recommend is that you have a hearty breakfast. The reason for that is because if you skip breakfast, your blood sugar, when it drops, the brain is going to be frantic for enough sugar to keep its functioning going. And so your cravings are going to be greater than if you would have had a good hearty breakfast. So I recommend good breakfast. The next thing is you want to pack in those dark green leafy vegetables. The reason for that is because when you've eaten a refined food diet, whether it's refined with grains or whatever, but particularly what we're talking about sugar, the refined sugar actually depletes your body of essential nutrients because the process of making energy out of sugar, when it's refined, the metabolism, it's called the Krebs cycle, it requires vitamins and minerals and other substrates to make energy from that sugar. And if it's not consumed in the food, like it's empty in the sugar, what happens is it has to go to other tissue. It has to go to the bones to get the calcium. It goes to the nervous tissue to get the B vitamins. So it's going to take these nutrients from other places. And over a period of time, while you are depleting your bank of high nutrients, when you start putting in nutrient-dense foods, which the dark leafy green vegetables are, then it's going to satisfy the body's need and you won't feel those cravings as much. So that's a key thing. You can add legumes, or the common name is beans. Legumes have a good level of protein as well as complex carbohydrates. And what they do, along with the the chlorophyll in your green plants, they help maintain a nice level blood sugar. And so you don't have these highs and you don't have these lows. So that's another thing to look at. And I'm just going to throw that out, out throw this next um, recommendation out there. Some countries, the culture um, adopts this practice, but it's not common in the country I come from. But I recommend that you have your dark greens, your salads, your leafy greens, and your beans for breakfast. When you're starting a trip, let's say you, you've got to make a journey and you've got to drive 100 miles, are you going to leave in your car with an empty tank and then hopefully make it and fill up when you get to your destination? You don't do that. You've got to put the fuel in at the beginning of your journey. Well, the morning is the beginning of your journey throughout the day. So you want to fill your tank. And when you put the solid nutrients into your body in the morning, it helps keep you even throughout the day. It's very different than if you eat it in the middle of the day or in the evening. All right. Next, I would say don't snack. Drink only water between meals. The next important thing is that you get good sleep. Studies have shown that when you have a lack of sleep, your willpower is impaired, and it's harder to say no. So you want to make sure you get plenty of rest. And the next thing is get plenty of good exercise. There's metabolism that happens in the body when you exercise that it changes your thinking. It makes you more 
apt to eat healthier. You want to be healthier. You feel healthier, and it just is a synergistic effect. You say, you know, I want to stay away from junk, junk food. So your choices are better with the exercise. Now, I want to tell you that it would be very important that you eliminate the temptations, especially when you're starting, because your resolve is going to be weak and those cravings are going to be, going to be great. So you want to get rid of all the temptations. I would say start with getting rid of the sugary drinks. That would be step one. The next is to move out of the junk food. Then you want to switch to a more complex carbohydrate instead of simple carbohydrates. You want to detect and avoid any of the hidden sugars in foods. And you want to find ways to make healthy substitutes. The easy thing is eat the fruit. Fruit is our natural sugars. And then there's cookbooks out there that you can get that help you to take the fruit and complex carbohydrates and make healthy desserts. Well, I hope this has been a benefit and an encouragement to you today. God bless you as you make these changes. Thank you. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.